Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If you've made it this far in the series, congratulations, and I bet you're tired of my voice, but we're not quite done yet. Uh, As you saw with the last episode with Kate Kelly, we were talking about sort of 1870s, 1880s Utah, and we're going to keep moving forward and we're going to get into the manifesto. But before we do that, I want to tell a story of a woman that I've been trying to tell for a long, long time. In fact, this is my third time recording this story. I've had a really difficult time talking about her. It's hard to explain why, but I think after you listen to this episode, you'll understand why this was such a difficult episode to record and to research. I will say right from the beginning, this is probably going to be, to my knowledge, one of the most gruesome episodes we have done yet. I can't promise for the future because I haven't researched that far into the future yet, but as of now, this is the most gruesome, violent episodes I will record. This is not an episode you should listen to with young children in the room, and there will be multiple trigger warnings. We are going to be talking about some very, very dark, terrible things. Most of them imagine uh, conjecture, a lot of them invented, but some of them not, which is probably the true, truest horror of it all. I want to talk about a woman. Often I do these sketches of the lives of women, and I have many more in store. There are so many fascinating frontier women that I am honored to talk about And I feel the exact same way about this particular woman I'm talking about today. However, historians largely ignore her. History has largely ignored her. And even she seems somewhat ashamed of her own history, perhaps, that she felt the need to embellish it. But what we do know about her is fantastic enough that I think she needs to be honored. Her name is Anne Gorge. I first became acquainted with Anne Gorge when I was reading Judith Freeman's novel, Red Water. It's the fictional novel that I always talk about. And if you haven't read it yet, go read it. It is what got me interested in Mormon history to begin with. And I have such a fondness for it. In the novel, Judith Freeman, the author, writes about some of the wives, some of the women married to John D. Lee. Who, as you know by now, is the fall man is the man that took the fall for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, one of the most horrific massacres on U.S. soil since um, of of other white Americans were not considered indigenous people in our history books. Judith Freeman talks about these these women, and she tries to get in their head, and she uses a lot of historical narrative to do it. It's brilliant. One of the women she focuses on is John D. Lee's last wife, Anne Gorge. Now. Judith is so affectionate and sympathetic in the way that she writes about Anne, and I hope to do the same thing. You have to know 
that Anne wrote an autobiography, and I'm just going to tell you what the BYU Special Collection says. If you want to read her autobiography, you can get it at the Harold B. Lee L. Tom Perry Special Collections Library. I think you have to pay $35 to get it digitized, and they'll send it to you. Or you can, I'll give you some book recommendations where, where it's in as well. It's handwritten, and I'll tell you where they came across from it. But this is what they say about Anne Gorge Lee. They say, handwritten autobiography. Anne Lee tells about her family's conversion to Mormonism in Australia, their emigration to Utah, and her life as a Mormon woman in southern Utah. She gives details of the brutal activities of Mormon leaders, including those of John D. Lee, her husband. She converted to Catholicism later in her life. While the work makes references to historical events, the researcher is cautioned that most of the work seems to be pure fiction. End quote. When I first read that, I was fascinated, and I was a little angry because I had never seen a sort of disclaimer like that, and it seemed so dismissive of this woman. It seemed so dismissive of her history. And then I read the autobiography. If you're going to read it, you need a really strong stomach. I mean, I have read stuff from the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I've read some accounts, but Anne's is a wild tale of dark dark conspiracy and violence and ritual abuse and it's 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 one of those that it starts out kind of intriguing but by the end you you wish you didn't read it at least that's how i felt i was recommended to a great edit of her autobiography by Joe Geisner, who has been on the podcast before and will be on the podcast in the future he recommended a fantastic book it's a book uh, that is contributed by many historians uh they cite Juanita Brooks, D. Michael Quinn, but it's Will Bagley and Polly Aird who put together this book called Kingdom in the West. It's an entire series. It's a big, hefty series. If you're interested in the West and the Mormon history, this is a very, very detailed look into it. I'm working in particular with volume 13, and I love the title. It's Playing with Shadows, Voices of Descent in the Mormon West. And Polly Aird does this fantastic job of editing the autobiography. In fact, she gives her foreword to this autobiography is brilliant and very, very telling. I love the idea of collecting the stories of dissenters. Now, that seems odd because as Mormons, we're taught that everybody is dissenters and every history is a dissent from the true history of Mormonism. But I think, as I see now, and as I've sort of been in this sort of, sort of like faith transitioning world where I've known people to go through this, I think I have such an affection for someone like Anne Gorge. She was someone who was wounded by the system. That much is evident. I mean, I don't know how you couldn't go through her life and not be wounded by the system. And yet, she still struggled. She's, this is a story of survival. It's a story of descent. But I think it's a story of so many more complicated narratives happening. And I can hear some scholars hearing, maybe listening to this and saying, oh my gosh, you're giving her too much credit. I don't think so. I think if we understand this narrative, it might help us understand more about ourselves, helps me understand more about myself and my dissent and criticism of the culture that I grew up in, and maybe my affection for it. You have to understand that at the time that Anne Gorge writes this autobiography, the dime novel, the Western dime novel, is a huge phenomenon. There are many, many dime novels about the West that are you sort of embellish these tales of Billy the Kid and other uh, Western heroes. And in Terrell Givens' book, The Viper on the Hearth, Mormon's Myth and the Construction of Heresy, 
He talks about the popular press fiction and moral crusading. He talks about these dime novels. I'm going to read a quote from his book. He says, quote, Dime novels published by Erastus Beadle began with Edward Ellis's 1860 Seth Jones or The Captives of the Frontier, one of the most popular of all tales in these series, selling over 400,000 copies in half a year. The American wilderness does not lend itself to medieval settings and labyrinth abbeys and castles, but the zeitgeist readily accommodated supernaturalism, perverse evil, and lots and lots of bondage. Keyword bondage, we're going to come back to that. Thus, the Mormons with their closed communities and alleged unorthodox sexual practices like the Shakers and Catholic orders invited salacious exploitation by two ready literary genres. These purient features of popular fictions were seldom absent from even the most reform-minded works of the period, especially in the year 1790 to the 1860s. Writers Jane Tompkins, write, writes Jane Tompkins, authors were engaged in what she calls cultural work. Her recent study is largely an attempt to combat the elitist literary tradition in, in the West that she feels is founded upon the myth of timeless classics, according to which such, quote, ineffable products of genius transcend the particular moment of their conception and escape national, social, economic, institutional, and professional interests. In discussing the works of popular fiction that are her subject and mine, she resorts instead to a model of literary works as attempt to redefine the social order. Obviously, anti-Mormon novels, like anti-Catholic ones, are trying to do something besides merely entertain. They are attempting to eradicate heresy and popery, two examples of cultural work at its most blatant. Now, I think, I think Givens is right. These novels were not just meant to entertain. In Anne's case, I think it's, it's hard to tell. I'm going to tell you where her autobiography comes, but her autobiography is certainly entertaining, I guess. It certainly is interesting to read, but I also, in it, I see a woman struggling to tell her story, struggling to be relevant, struggling to feel valued, and struggling to find meaning in her life, and hoping that others will too. Polyard suggests in the book several reasons for her writing this. One of them is that the autobiography is really written in the sort of a dime novel sort of way. And she speculates that perhaps Anne wrote this to hopefully cash in on this fad that was happening, these dime novels, and try to make some money, which makes sense for a woman with not a lot of means. And certainly the auto autobiography reads like that. Let me just tell you how this manuscript came about. It was purchased by Brigham Young University from Mrs. Betty A. Riley of Hetman, California, in October of 1987. Mrs. Riley obtained the manuscript two months previous to selling it to her BYU, previous to selling to BYU from her brother Thomas Elliott of Livingston, Pennsylvania. He apparently obtained it from his grandmother, Moriah Webster, who had lived in Tennessee until her death in about 1949. It is Mrs. Riley's understanding that her grandmother had obtained the manuscript from Roland Hall, the brother of her father, that is, from her uncle who died in approximately 1913. Beyond that, the family has no idea where the manuscript came from and has no idea where Roland Hall obtained the manuscript. This is all from BYU's website. From all we can ascertain, the manuscript has been kept in a sort of shoebox wrapped in some sort of ribbon for at least the last 50 years, and it has only been recently when Betty Riley sought to examine the manuscript that she discovered who had written it and therefore tried to sell it to the Mormon archive. Okay, So it kind of comes in this sort of like mysterious way it shows up and then you know historians are trying to authenticate it 
It's such an interesting story. So one of the things that also interests me about Anne is it's said that she dies sort of, we don't quite know the date of her death, but in Tintic, Utah. Now, I live out in Tooele County, and Tintic, Utah is in Tooele County. And if you are ever looking for some fun ghosts, ghost towns and mining towns, and especially if you have off-road access, a four-wheeler like to hike, you can come up to Silver City and Tintic City and all of these old mining towns out by Eureka. And they're odd because like Eureka still has people living there, but you have like Porter Rockwell's home and you have all these abandoned buildings that are crumbling on their own main street. It's kind of eerie and, and the cemeteries are fantastic. But at one time, these were booming, often Gentile mining towns. And it's interesting to see Anne spend her last days there. I sometimes feel a little bit haunted by her ghost. And I, I know some people think I might be romanticizing it, but that's what history is to me. It's, it's a romance with our past. And so I really, really like to think of Anne. The reason why I'm telling the story of a dissenter who can't be trusted is because I think that in the dissenting voices, we hear stories we wouldn't hear elsewhere. Anne talks about some things that are horrific, horrific. There's no doubt. Many of them are questionable, but some are not. For example, she's going to be talking about some of the lynchings of African Americans in Utah. Many historians will not touch the subject. This is a controversial subject. You don't see this in mainstream history. You have to go looking for this to find this. And it's a history sort of a race because it's such a dark, terrible history. But Anne talks about this. She talks about these things. And even though a lot of her, you know, story is based in, you know, the complete machinations of her brain, I don't think all of it is. I think a lot of it is, is based in some sort of kernel of truth. And I'm going to give you her little life sketch, and then I'm going to tell you what Polly Aird says about it, because Polly Aird did some wonderful, wonderful work. And I'm going to link to this book. This is a fantastic book. It's a little pricey, but it is worth it. It has stories of all these dissenters, and it's just, it's an amazing read. Super interesting. So what we know about Anne was she was the daughter of Samuel and Marib Han Hancock Gorge. And her parents were from Ireland, but we know that they somehow converted to Mormonism and end up in Australia. So Anne is born in Australia in 1848. Now, her father dies sort of mysteriously. It's uh, it's interesting. He was supposed to have drowned on Christmas Eve in 1853. There are stories of him drowning, and there are stories of him abandoning the family. We don't know exactly what happened. But her mother, Marib, and the family... Uh, join the join up with the local community, and they end up emigrating to America in 1854. They arrive in California later that year, and they stay in California until 1857. Now, I know we throw a lot of dates on this, but dates are super important. I know. I'm sure your your history teachers are clapping their hands. Dates are important. 1857, and that's when Anne arrives in Utah. What else happens in 1857? Mountain Meadows Massacre. This is one of the most violent periods in Utah's history as far as white-on-white -white violence goes. During that time, we know that Anne's mother marries a man named John Phillips. They settle in Washington County, but later move to Beaver, Utah. Now, this gets sort of controversial. Anne would marry John D. Lee. She claims to have been around 13 years old. The ages are you know, it's really hard to pin down 13 to 17, but we do know she was extremely young and ill-prepared. There's some 
evidence to suggest that the marriage took place in 1863. She marries John D. Lee, youngest wife. She would have three children, up to four or five pregnancies. She has a miscarriage we know of. And in, in just a short period of time, because, you know, she marries John D. Lee in, in the 1860s, and John D. Lee doesn't last long before he is uh, killed several years later. So she lives with him for a while, and he sells his property in Harmony, and they move to the Great Basin in Kane County, known as Upper Kanab. Of course, John is moving because, for several reasons, church leaders are telling him to go there, but he's also facing a lot of controversy, and he's sort of being shunned now by his Mormon neighbors as pressure from the federal government for Mountain Meadows ramps up, and they find out sort of these whisperings of the horrors that are happening. We know that he arrives in Skutempa, October 17, 1870, bringing from New Harmony one of his wife's, Rachel, and her three children. And the other wives remained at the New Harmony property. So the wives that stay are Emma Batchelor, Sarah Caroline Williams, and Anne Gorge. Two more of his wives, Polly and Levina, reside in Washington, about 40 miles south. Now, Lee would marry several women, um more than that, but they would not stay married to him. Somebody asked me about a comment I made about John D. Lee being sort of known for his sexual appetite and I, and about where I got the source. And so since I have that in front of me, I just wanted to point out that um, he, Will Bagley talks quite a bit about this in Blood of the Prophets. And so if you want to learn more about that, there is there is some um, evidence to suggest that Lee would brag about some of the things that he did. Judith Freeman talks about it and sort of, you know, works that into her story about how John D. Lee was very talented with his hands, if you know what I mean. So, and if you don't, read the book. <laughs> so, um, so John D. Lee's facing a lot of pressure and... Um, He's trying to secure the sawmill. So on January 6th, 1871, he secured re- the replacement for part of the sawmill. And he's trying to bring all the family together. Now, in 1871, Emma joins the family. She's the wife that joins the family. And we know that Anne Gorge was supposed to have come with her. But it's said that she abandons him and her, and her two older children. Of course, the narrative is that this was all, quote, through the influence of wicked and evil designing persons and that Anne had been, her mind had been turned against her and she had become wicked and she had left and stolen, stolen everything from John D. Lee. That's one story. There are several stories out there and Anne will tell her own side of the story, but we do know that she leaves John D. Lee. She goes on to live what she claims to be this wild life. She claims to ride with Billy the Kid and all of these other fantastic stories I'm going to talk to you about, the truth of the matter seems a little bit less fantastic, but let's get into it. I've given a quite a long introduction, and I think we need to sort of get into the meat of her story now. I want to talk about how Polly Aird frames her autobiography, so you can kind of understand uh, how Polly interprets this. She says, quote, the genuine tribulations of Anne Gorge's young life undoubtedly shaped her recollection of events. Consider again her experience. And imagine how a young girl might understand her world. She lost her father, and her mother's new faith required such an all-encompassing dedication that the family had to make a long sea voyage to another continent. 
There her mother remarried and began bearing her new husband's children, but the family and their neighbors were uprooted again and ordered to move to Utah by a distant authority. Near the end of their arduous trek across the desert, they encountered a scene of fresh horror and mountain meadows. The remains of scores of men, women, and children, rent by bullets, knives, clubs, and wild animals. At their camp near the massacre site, the immigrants were greeted by a group of important local men, several of whom, including John D. Lee, clearly knew a good deal about the crime. The startled immigrants had arrived in their new home, a hard-scarble frontier society roiled by the Mormon Reformation, and exhibiting a siege mentality as it expected war with the United States. The Phillips family settled in Beaver, a tiny, tiny hamlet north of Lee's homes at Harmony in Washington. Lee was clearly respected by many but feared by some, and he passed through Beaver periodically with a retinue of wives and children preaching, laying hands on the ill or injured, and sharing meals. The child, Anne, would have watched Lee speak with her stepfather and other adults, and she may have listened to the oldest settlers whispering to each other while some refused to speak to him. Lee must have looked back at her, because a few years later, Lee would become his 19th wife. She was the newest member of an extended family of wives and children, some of the latter older than her, subject to all the usual human tensions and hardships, plus the special burdens of polygamous relationships. Lee, a notorious sexual man, may have been, may have paid disproportionate physical attention to his newest mate. And of course, this is when she cites Bagley's Blood of the Prophets, page 21. He placed her at harmony with another of his wives, and she set to work around the households and fields. Lee, who had been prosperous, began to suffer small disasters and financial reversals. His neighbors became more openly hostile towards him, and the church leaders with whom he had been so close now began to distance themselves. Six years, at least four pregnancies, and three children after she married him, Lee left for exile in a remote location that promised little but poverty and isolation. Anne Gorge, Anne Gorge rejected that future. She was not yet 23 years old when she leaves him. Looked at in this light, Anne's colorful recitation of her early life might represent a type of trauma narrative, a garbled attempt to comp comprehend and convey her experiences as a way of healing her older self, end quote. And then Aird gives this great citation. She says, for an introduction to the growing literature on trauma, see Gilmore, The Limits of Autobiography and La Capra, writing history, writing trauma. And so I actually followed those down, and it was so informative to me. And I think I think that's what even inspired me to read about this even more and to want to podcast this, because writing through trauma and writing an autobiography through trauma is, in a sense, a way of healing past traumas. And, and I see this theme very strongly in Anne Gorge's autobiography, which is why it's so important to me, and I feel like it's so important to, to say to you. If you'll permit me, I just want to lead, read a little bit more of Polly Aird because it's so brilliantly done. She says, quote, While Anne's lived experience undoubtedly shaped her harsh portrayal of her world, she also possessed an active imagination, especially when it came to scenes of violence. 
The memoir achieves full takeoff into fantasy with the story of her break with John D. Lee. Anne relates a waking dream in which she sees Lee cut the throat of an old man, then realizes she must escape before Lee puts her out of the way. The rest of her tale seems to mostly be invention, including the Indians and outlaws, but also trips to Australia twice and Ireland, which seem beyond her financial means. She ends with more plausible recitation of work, she performed in the mining camps of Idaho and Montana. What can we make of this baffling document? Why did Anne write it, and what could she possibly have intended to do with it? We have little besides the memoir itself to go on, and its clues are slight. Despite the roughness of her style, Anne obviously tried to tell her life story in an approved 19th century autobiographical fashion, beginning with her birth and ending with what she evidently viewed as the close of her adventure settling in Salt Lake City in 1883. She addresses the reader and includes phrase like, we will now remove to, indicating that she expected others to read the memoir. Several hypotheses are conceivable. Anne, a fugitive from polygamy and Catholic convert, may have wanted to leave testimony that would discredit the LDS church. That's that's what uh, Given sort of suggests in his in his book. She rehearses some of the most prevalent contemporary accusations against Mormons, secrecy, tyranny, greed, lechery, and violence. Anne believed that she remained the target of Mormon animosity decades after Lee was dead. The LDS church had abandoned plural marriage, and Utah had already become a state. In an unpublished introduction to a version of the autobiography, Lee Bishop states that in 1914, his ancestor, O.L. Bishop, was a Salt Lake policeman. And this is the story that uh, Lee Bishop uh, tells about his ancestor, about Anne Gorge. He says that the policeman, quote, was dispatched to an old West Side apartment where an elderly woman and her daughter lived. He found them virtually Im- imprisoned on the verge of starving to death. Officer Bishop went out and brought meat and groceries from them out of his own money. The women were shunned by the usually hospitable Mormons. They would not let her son and Lee's too enter the apartment house. Non-Mormon neighbors brought what food and coal they could afford, passing it through a small window that opened in the alley. Anne Gorge Lee was a pitiful sight, her little wa- her life wasting away, all of this as a result of turning Lee into the authorities, end quote. This, this is an interesting affidavit that comes from Twin Falls, Idaho, and, and shows up later on in 1988. So we don't know how true this is, but if this is true, this is asserting that Anne Lee Gorge, when she comes back to Utah, is shunned so much that she is starved to death in a building and uh, because she turned in John D. Lee. One other thing I want to say about Anne, Lee, Anne Gorge before we before we talk about her, before I actually read her narrative, is I want to talk about how something else I really appreciated about her. She writes her her story in sort of a dime novel fashion, but usually in dime novels, Indians are always the villains, but not in Anne's story. She writes, she writes the the same sort of captivity narrative that is very popular in dime novels about being captured. But in her story, the villains are Mormons. I feel like that's really interesting. The Indians are actually the heroes. She writes a lot about Geronimo. She writes about Billy the Kid. She sort of um, writes in this sort of, you know, old style that you see in maybe the adventures of Daniel Boone or Deerslayer or the old Shatterhand, any of those old novels. 
You can tell that she must have read them because she seems to use the same sort of style. So I, I like some of the things that she does. Of course, she casts herself in a heroic light. You'll see this in her, in pieces of the autobiography that I'm going to read. She is the woman sleeping above like she's she's like spying down on the Mormons as they're plotting and then she escapes to go save the day and and tell the person that they're going to kill right right in the nick of time before they get him and you know and he escapes and she has saved the day. It's an interesting narrative. Um so I'm gonna go ahead and read large portions of her narrative. This is gonna be a longer episode, but I I feel like you should hear it in her words. And uh again Get your children out of the room. This is gruesome, gruesome stuff. And even I don't think I'm going to read all of it because some of it is just too gruesome. Here we go from Anne Gorgely. Her autobiography is titled, Oh Utah, Blush with Shame. Anne Gorge's Tales of Blood Atonement. She begins by telling her story of where she was born. She talks about coming to Utah and her mother marrying John Phillips. Let me tell you what she says. Two years after we arrived in California, my mother married a man by the name of John Phillips in the year of 1855. In two years after, in the year of 1857, my mother and stepfather moved to Utah. In the month of September of the above year was committed what is known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I saw the people there after the occurrence, scattered over the ground, butchered in the most horridable manner. And then this next part is written but crossed out. Little children with long dresses on, heads put between the spokes of wagon wheel, and their necks broken, and mothers in the family way pregnant with their bowels ripped open and babies torn from them and thrown upon the ground. That's all crossed out. We camped two days at Mountain Meadows and moved to South Jacob Hamblin's ranch. As we came to the ranch, the following named persons were there. Isaac Haight, John M. Higby, George A. Smith, one of the Twelve Apostles, Major John D. Lee. I heard the above-named men talking about the Mountain Meadow Affair and how the bodies of the men were mutilated with their privates cut off and the young women and girls treated in the same or similar manner to leave the impression that the Indians had committed this dastardly and most revolting deed. After they got through talking, George A. Smith said that the blessing of the church be upon you. Brigham Young will be here in a few days and will divide the property. I supposed you got it all safe, and they answered yes. There were two men made their escape from the slaughter, then two Indians and one white man were sent after them. They were captured at Mojave, New Mexico, where they killed them. Their horses were brought back with five or six hundred dollars in money to take from the murdered men. Ira Hatch, the white man who helped with the two Indians to capture the two men who were fleeing for their lives. Hatch wanted to keep the money, and they had taken from the murdered men for his own use. No, no, said Isaac Haight and William H. Dame. We want the money for Brigham when he comes. They expected him right away, but he did not come until the following spring after the adjournment of the legislature. John D. Lee was a member of the legislature from Washington County. When he came up as a member, he brought with him $22,000, money taken from the destroyed train and murdered people, which sum of money was turned over by Mr. Lee to Brigham Young. When expressed his astonishment at receiving so small amount, there was taken from the train and murdered people three million of dollars. The above amount was divided between six. This immigrant train massacred at the massacred at Mountain Meadows was from Fount Scott, Kansas, and 
Fount Smith. The captain in charge of the train was one Charles Francher, and the lieutenant's name was James Dougherty. <laughs> Sorry, her spelling's a little off. As the immigrant train was passing through the territory of Utah, they tried to buy vegetables, but the Mormons would not sell them anything. The object was to hamper them, so they could not get through. All the Mormons ahead were notified that the train was on the road and not to sell them anything. The massacre was planned in Salt Lake City by Brigham Young, and the Mountain Meadows was a place agreed upon to do the work. Brigham Young wrote a letter to John D. Lee instructing him how to do the work, but by all means to keep his name in the dark. As knowing nothing about it and having nothing to do with the job indirectly or directly, that thereby he would be able to help him do more good in the hereafter. This letter was signed by Brigham Young, governor of the state of Deseret. The immigrants had an ox who died on the road, and the Mormons immediately filled the flesh of the dead ox with poison. The Indians ate the ox and were poisoned, so many of them died. This was done for the purpose of inciting and infuriating the Indians against the immigrants. They also pointed poison in one of the wells. One of the children took a drink of the water and died in a few minutes. The immigrants moved from there to where they could get pure water. The Mormons would not give them lumber to make a coffin for the child. They took the lumber after which they marched onto Beaver, and there they warned not to go to the road by Iron County, but keep off more towards Nevada. Every town they went through were hated and called all kinds of names and treated most shamefully by people claiming to be Christians. Anyway, she goes more into the detail of um, the Mountain Meadows. Again, this autobiography is like 86 pages long, so I'm definitely not going to read all of it. I am going to tell you parts that I think are pretty horrific, and this is not to incite you, but I, I do, I don't want to honor lies, but I do want to express to you the trauma that she's trying to um, express in her narrative. She tells a story about John D. Lee. Okay, remember, this is a man she would have children with. This is the story she recounts of him. Quote, there was, young girl there was one young girl made her escape from where the slaughtering was going on. In her great excitement, she did not know where she was going. She met a young man on horseback, begged the young man to save her. He asked her what the matter was. She told him they were murdering all her people. This young man did not know anything about the massacre. While they were talking, up came John D. Lee. She begged the young man to save her from that man. He took hold of the girl. The young man spoke up and said, Father, what are you going to do? The young man proved to be Lee's oldest son. Mr. Lee told him to go and mind his own business. The young man obeyed orders and left. After he was gone, Lee ravished the girl and then murdered her. So Lee's oldest son is John Alma Brooks. And this rape-murder story is one of many varieties. Uh, Juanita Brooks talks about it in Mountain Meadows. Will Bagley talks about it in Blood of the Prophets. Walker, Turley, and Leonard talk about it in Massacre at Mountain Meadows. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is I feel like rape is a, is, um, a very prevalent part of Western violence. It is not discussed. It is not talked about. It is not touched. And I think that it erases the violence done to women. It's not like something that I want to celebrate or force upon listeners necessarily. But I think it's important that we remember that this stuff was happening. This is how women were treated. So she goes on to tell this. She, you know, writes this poem in her autobiography that uh, historians actually think wasn't a poem that she wrote because it's actually quite eloquent. Um, they think it was written by a soldier, which is sad. I mean, it's hard for me to say that Anne wasn't eloquent, but she wasn't very educated. That much is clear. 
but she sort of co-ops that and puts it in her story. She tells the story of moving in um, with John D. Lee's wife. So we know that there were tension right away, and in fact, she was um, quite rough. Quite rough. John D. Lee would write about it in his in his journal about how difficult she could sometimes be. And uh, I wanted I wanted to read um, go back to Polly Aird, and this is what Polly Aird says. Anne's claim power does not flow from her maternal status. In fact, she effaces her children from her text entirely. She may have felt guilty for abandoning her two children, although legally Lee could have probably claimed all three. But few Western heroines have children, except as a happy culmination of their adventures, let alone abandon them for someone else to raise. With few exceptions, Anne is a besieged loner. She expresses little solidarity with or affection for her sister-wives, other than sympathizing with Caroline for her many children and describe, describing one homey scene with Agatha Ann and a cup of coffee. Emma and Anne live together at Harmony, but not always in Harmony. Only three weeks after Emma's twins were born, one of whom was named for Anne, John D. Lee wrote vaguely in his diary, quote, that a very unpleasant occurrence transpired between Emma B. and one of the most high-strung women of the age who collapsed with Anne G., but soon repented and sought restitution, end quote. Instead of a motherly or sisterly persona, the self that Anne imagined demonstrates supposedly masculine attributes of strength and courage. In this, she reflects the realities of challenging frontier life. Anne, in her uh, autobiography, often sort of compares herself in these sort of shadow ways with characters like Calamity Jane. In fact, when I think of Anne, I think of Calamity Jane in a lot of ways, in this sort of fantastic, not-quite-sure-what-to-believe sort of narrative. Here's the best story, though. A neighbor, Lee's diary writes this this story about Anne. I guess a neighbor had been cutting Lee's shade trees. And by the time Lee arrives, um, his his two wives that are there are trying to stop it. It's Anne and Emma. They're trying to stop this neighbor from doing this. And um, <laughs> when Lee gets there, Anne and the neighbor were, quote, both on the ground and Anne with one hand in his hair and the other pounding him in the face. In the meantime, Emma returned with a new supply of hot water and then pitched it into him with Anne, and they both haddled him rather rough. His face was in gore of blood. End quote. So, Anne's holding this guy in the ground, beating the crap out of him, and Emma comes from the kitchen with yet another pot of boiling hot water dumping it on the guy. This is how they solved it. Of course, uh, he tries to take legal action, and John Dooley wins the suit. So anyway, I tell that because I think that that is one of the few like interactions that we have into the glimpse of what it was like to be a sister wife with Anne Gorge. She she talks about her endowment house. And I'm going to read this story. This is a horrific story. I do not think that there is any truth to this story. But I'm going to read it because it's one of the most interesting rumors that I've ever read about Mormonism. I haven't read a lot of anti-Mormon narratives or dime novels, but I certainly, like, this stuck out to me, and I was like, what is that? So let me tell you about her story. There, again, warning, there's going to be some talk about the temple, because she's in the endowment house. And this is, of course, where they did ceilings at the time before the Salt Lake Temple or the St. George Temple was being built. 
She says, quote, On the ninth, we went to the city. We stayed with a family by the name of Haywood. We got in about 10 o'clock in the morning after we got into Mr. Lee said to me, You'd better go down to town and get what you want. I went and dressed. Mrs. Haywood and myself went down to make my purchases. John D. Lee wanted to buy me some dresses or presents for his other wives, but I would do nothing of the kind. Mrs. Haywood told me that I would need things for housekeeping, and that I had better spend my money in fixing up comfortable. Now, remember when Anne is re recollecting on this, she would have been a child. Again, she was 23 when she leaves John. She marries him at a very, very young age. So this is recollecting her childhood. Saturday morning, we fixed to go to the endowment house. We had to take a bath and wash clean all over and put on pure white clean clothes. About half past eight o'clock, we started for Mrs. Haywood's for the endowment house. After we got there, we went into a room, a long, dark room. On each side of the room near the walls were benches for seating purposes. On the center of the room was vacant, the room being oblong on the west end, and the room was erected a large, high desk and a man sitting at the desk recording the names of the women and the men. The women's names were taken first, and the men, A.O. Spencer was church recorder. After we got through recording our names, we went into another room. We had to pass into this by a narrow curtain. The men passing the curtain on the right and the women on the left, there was a curtain drawn through the center of the room. From one end of the room to the other, this curtain went through the center of the room and reached within 18 inches of the walls. At each end of the curtains, there were fixed bath tables. After every thing was arranged, all of the parties stripped stark naked, as naked as they were born, the men on one side of the curtain and the women on the other side, after which our clothes was tied up in separate bundles and taken upstairs to another room. We were then introduced to the bathtubs. Okay, so really quick, I just want to point out that this sounds kind of different and unrealistic, but actually, this little part right here where she's describing is not all that untrue. It's based in fact, the endowment process was a lot different. I've been talking with Devery Anderson, who wrote the development of Temple, LDS Temple Worship, and he's, he is writing a book on Emmett Till right now, so he's been a little bit busy, but he's gonna come back and talk about this, talk about the development of the endowment house. So what Anne is describing is not actually all that inaccurate. There were three women who were in charge of the bathtubs on the female side of the curtain. Mrs. E. R. Snow, which would be Eliza R. Snow, Emmeline Wells, and Hiram Smith's wife. Those ladies were of very high standing in the Mormon church. Mrs. Snow was high priestess, prophetess, poetess. They washed us thereafter, and they anointed us with sweet oil, after which they gave us each a new name. My new name was to be Elizabeth, and all the other women were named the same. We then were put in garments called the combination garment. This garment was marked on the right side with a square on the left side and a heart across the breast and rent across the bowels, indicating the penalty of an oath, which will be more fully explained hereafter. The mark across the knee was to remind you when you kneel down to pray, you must curse the Gentiles and the government. Again, that's not untrue. After we put on our garments or combination suit or skirt, we were required to put over this a robe, three yards long, two widths of linen, put on the right shoulder and crossed on the left, something after the manner of the ancient Roman style, and the feet were dressed in white stockings and white slippers. Then she goes on to des describe more of this and what it represents. Um, and she talks about Elloween. <sighs> Halloween, which is Elohim, I think. <laughs> um, anyway, she goes, she goes into some detail about this. Uh, and she talks about how Heber C. Kimball plays Adam in this, in this production. After that, uh, she talks about 
some of the oaths that they take, and then she says, We were ushered into another room upstairs. The room upstairs represented the grave. It is a large room with a curtain drawn across the middle of the room. The marks on the garment are also on this curtain. Then she explains this process. She talks about Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young's first counselor, who was Brigham Young's first counselor, sort of doing this, and uh, talks about the marriage ceremony. After they got through talking, I went into another room called a dressing room for ladies, and there I dressed in my former dress, the first one I appeared in at the endowment house. Mr. Lee went into another room called a dressing room for gentlemen where he changed and put on clothing he first appeared in at the endowment house. There were some twenty couples to be married, and we had to stay until all were married. On this occasion, there were two young ladies present without escorts, one of which was very beautiful, equal to that Queen of Mary, Queen of Scots. The other was the most homely person you could ever imagine, very unattractive. I think that also describes the color of this narrative. And I just want to point out, like, when she's describing Heber C. Kimball and John D. Lee going through this temple ceremony, a similar ceremony to what I went through, it's so odd for me to think of these men knowing what I know about them and picturing them, like, going through this ceremony, something that's very familiar to me. Then, this is where the narrative gets crazy. She says, quote, Heber C. Kimball took the beautiful one, beautiful girl. Remember, there's two. There's the very unattractive one and the very beautiful one. Heber C. Kimball takes the beautiful one into the adjoining room to talk with her, and as he stayed with her about 15 minutes and came out, this was repeated by nine other different persons. After they were all through with their brutal conduct, the girl appeared in the door and fell dead from the loss of blood. After she fell, the incarnate devil of Kimball looked with the cool indifference of a brute and said, put her away, and she was dropped down a hole through a trap door made for the purpose where many a person had gone before her. She was an English girl with a widowed mother. She had not been in the country over six months. The man representing the devil at the endowment house was by the name of Phelps, made the remark that, will I do the same with the mother? And he answered that they would silence her, which was promptly done. So what she's saying is W.W. W. Phelps was playing the devil in the temple, and Heber C. Kimball was playing Adam. And after they got all done and dressed, for some reason the men took this beautiful woman and, of course, raped her one by one until she died, and then threw her in a pit in the endowment house. And when I read this, I was like, what? And, of course, I mean, there are so many problems with this narrative, right? Like, there's a pit in the endowment house. How do they get rid of all these bodies? How do they avoid suspicion? How do they avoid the stink and the disposal of all these bodies? It's not like easily done. So that's, that's an example of where she's t telling the truth, telling the truth. And then we slip into some sort of crazy imaginative narrative. Um, I'm going to tell a few more of those and then I'm going to just let you research the rest because there's some really dark things that I just can't, I just can't read read and it's not worth you listening, but maybe worth you reading if you are interested in sort of trying to understand where she's coming from. So remember, I talked about the Southern Utah castrations and we have her sort of telling of this. Now, of course, she tells herself as the hero of the story. She says, quote, after we had been in Washington County one year, the Bishop Bob Covington came to my stepfather's house and told him to get ready and to go to Salt Lake for the purpose of going through the endowment house to get washed and anointed with salad oil, known as olive oil, olive oil in the church. While the bishop was with my father talking, I was hid under the bed. The bishop says to my stepfather, Where is Annie? My father answered, She is with her mother up to the Woodards. 
While she's away, I will tell you what we want. There is a young boy here in town. He is not a good Mormon. We want him put out of the way. My father answered him, no, that he would have nothing at all to do with it. The bishop told my stepfather that unless he did as requested, he would not give him a certificate to go to the endowment house. While they were still at the house, a Massey M. Lyman, Charles C. Rich, and George A. Smith, and a Massey says to my stepfather, Well, John, have you been to Salt Lake yet? My father answered, No. What is the reason? You have been here two years and have not yet gone. My stepfather answered he could not get his certificate because he would not destroy this young man's life as requested by the bishop. A Massey said that they did not want murdering done, and he gave my father a certificate to go to the Salt Lake City after they had all left except my stepfather and the bishop and a man named Slade. The bishop says to him that boy has got to be put out of the way, and so it was arranged that the boy was to be disposed of at twelve o'clock that night. After they left the house, I slipped out and went to Uncle Buck Smithton's, and I said, Uncle Buck, where is Johnny? He said that he was in the house. What is the matter? I told him that the bishop was going to kill Johnny that night at twelve o'clock and that he had better leave to save his life, and they came that night at twelve o'clock in the hour agreed upon, the bishop and two others, Covington, Slade, and John Hawley. And they said, Miss Smith then out, and asked him, Where is your notorious son? Smith then answered, He is in Nevada by this time, thanks to a friend. And do you, do you see, like, it's kind of a complicated narrative. She kind of jumps back and forth. But in this narrative, Johnny escapes these avenging angels, barely, thanks to a friend. And, of course, she's the friend. She also tells another story that Judith Freeman references, and actually there are several different tellings of this story. And it's basically the story that they're having a picnic, um, and of course they're all sitting around, and John D. Lee has given one of his wives a new dress. One of his wives is um, dressed in this new dress and gold watch and chain, and remember with the massacre, for a time, for about a year, the surviving children of the massacre were kind of like shipped out to different families. John D. Lee, of course, took a little boy, and uh, Jacob Hamlin had some of the other children for a while. So um, here's what she says of this story. She says, John D. Lee came down from Harmony with three of his wives, but he also brought with him three children of whom was taken out of Mountain Meadows Massacre. One Sunday morning after Mr. Lee came down, Myself and the children were sitting on the grass. Emma, one of the wives of Mr. Lee, came out to where we were sitting. She was dressed in a rich, more antique silk dress, leghorn hat trimmed with black and pink ribbon, heavy gold bracelets, gold watch and chain, and heavy gold earrings. And the little girl who was rescued from the Mountain Meadows massacre slaughter saw her. She said, She has got my mother's dress on. John D. Lee, who was sitting close by her, heard the child's remark. He got up and walked over where the child was sitting, reached down, took the child by the head and bent her head back and cut her throat from ear to ear, then threw her body in a well close by. This I saw with my own eyes, end quote. I believe that this story is rooted in some truth. I do believe that there is a story of a little child that saw one of the women, one of John D. Lee's wives, wearing a bloodstained dress and recognized it being their mother's dress. I find it very doubtful that John D. Lee would slit the child's throat in blood atonement style in front of everybody and tell several stories of this, of these people's throats being cut ear to ear and she witnesses all of it. My take on this, and I, this is pure speculation, but I suspect Anne had heard these tales. It is certainly not beyond John D. Lee to have done something like this, but I don't think 
Anne would have ever seen it. I think she heard it and sort of imagined herself seeing it, if that makes sense. She also talks about the castration. She says, quote, There was a very nice young man by the name of Anderson. He worked on Heber C. Kimball's farm where he was engaged to one of the most beautiful, most elegant young ladies in the neighborhood. She and her lover, Anderson, were secretly married, but this interfered with the arrangements of the bishop who wanted the young lady for one of his wives. But the young man loved the young lady with all his heart. He would not give her up. She fully reciprocated the young man's affection and would not hear to such a thing as giving up her lover and, in reality, her husband. When they found he could not reason with him out of the resolution, they called a meeting to dispose of his case. After they got through with the secret meeting, they sent for the young man and the young lady at the last effort to know if he can still... if he still resisted in his resolution, and he answered yes until death. They then took the young lady to go home. He wanted to go with her, but they would not let him. After she had gone, they took and bound him hands and blindfolded. He wanted to know what they were going to do with him. They told him that he would soon see. They took down his pants and castrated him then and there. This was on Saturday, and hanging his privates on a nail. And on Sunday at the public service, the privates of the young man hanging on the nail was pointed out to everyone in the meeting, I suppose as a warning, to be careful and not to cross the designs of the wishes of the bishop. With all this young man's misfortunes, the young lady never forsook him, and they are now living together as man and wife in Nevada, end quote. Now, of course, I covered this in the Southern Utah episode. You should listen to this. Again, this is how Anne tells her tale. There are sprinkles of truth, but there are also some really deviations from what we know of other accounts. Now, this is the... This is the narrative that is the most upsetting. And again, uh, this has a trigger warning. And I feel like I need to say it. Um, I've really struggled with telling this story because part of me does not want to rehash horrific stories. But I feel like if we're going to talk about castrations and we're going to talk about Mountain Meadows Massacre, um, we need to talk about this story. These, these stories cannot be erased. And they are very important. So I'm going to tell you Anne's story first, then I'm going to tell you what we know. She writes, quote, A Negro called Sambo with his wife and four children. He was well fixed and had a good team and a few cows and, and had some money. The Mormons followed the Negro family and robbed them of everything they had. Then the Mormon Danites burned them alive after robbing them. Some Gentiles going through to California passed the place soon after the, after the Negro was burned. They saw the dirt was fresh and recently disturbed, and there were some curious to know what was done for, and digging down in the soft dirt to see, after a spade or two, they came upon the body of one of the children, who was yet alive but died in about twelve hours from being exhumed. The bodies of the mother and father yet warm, they had been but a short time in the ground." End quote. <sighs> Of all of her stories of horror, this one I don't think is that inaccurate. In fact, something that is not talked about are the lynchings in Utah. Now, there has been some work done on this. Um, D. Michael Quinn, of course, writes about this. Um, and I'm going to tell some of those stories. And, of course, the Desert News, which remark on some of these as well, but uh, I would recommend D. Michael Quinn's The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power, where he sort of talks about this. And anyone else interested in sort of these sort of stories can um, read a book 
published um, by Stanford J. Layton, who is a former, former managing editor of Utah Historical Quarterly. The book is called Utah's Lawless Fringe Stories of True Crime, and it was published in 2001 by Signature Books. Um, I actually think Anne's story is very mild to what we do know happened, and I'm going to cover a few of those stories. Forgive me if it is offensive or hard to hear, but I think we need to know these stories. Uh, we need to know the legacy that we're kind of living on, the good one, the good things and the terrible, terrible things. Um, here's what D. Michael Quinn says. He says, quote, after years of publishing endorsements of Mormon attacks on the enemies, the Desert News recoiled in horror in August 1883 when Mormons of Salt Lake City engaged in what a historian called, quote, one of the most extraordinary episodes of mob, mob violence in the annals of the American West. The incident began when Salt Lake City Police Chief Andrew Burt attempted to arrest Sam Joe Harvey, an African-American, who then killed and shot Burt. Shot and killed Burt who was also, this policeman was also a bishop of an LDS congregation. So they try to arrest this black man, Sam, for some reason. He fights back and kills the policeman, who happens to also be a bishop. The other Mormon policeman disarmed Harvey and severely beat him with brass knuckles and billy clubs. Then the police simply handed the murderer over to a screaming mob, which lynched him. Joined by hundreds of men, women, and children who had learned of Bert's death, a crowd of at least 2,000 people cheered those who dragged Harvey's corpse through the streets. Of this incident, Apostle Heber J. Grant wrote, quote, Learn that Bishop Andrew Burt of the 21st Ward was shot and killed yesterday by the Negro, and the N-word did that shooting has been hung by the citizens, end quote. This, of course, is not an anomaly. Um... Quinn would write, quote, that despite an environment which promised blood atonement and retribution, the level of violence in Mormonism's frontier sanctuary was much lower than in other Western states. Nevertheless, Mormonism created a different dimension for violence in early Utah. LDS leaders publicly and privately encouraged Mormons to consider in their religious right to kill antagonistic outsiders, common criminals, LDS apostates, and even faithful Mormons who committed sins worthy of death. And of course, Anne talks about that in this narrative. She would go on to read, tell these horrific stories of other people having their throat cut and being chased in the desert. Stories that I'm not going to recount because there's enough, plenty enough to go around here. Um, there, there are certainly more stories of violence. In fact, in my own husband's family history, um, there, his family grew up in the Murray area, and I'm still trying to track this down. So if anyone could give me any information on this story, I would be much appreciated. Um, the The family tradition goes that my husband's grandfather was a little boy at the time. So this would have been in the late, I mean, the early 1900s, when a black man is brought onto their property and they hang him from a tree. And, of course, his mother was mad that they would do this. And that is the story. And I remember asking a family member about this. I said, why, tell me, what What did he do? Why Why would they do this? Why would they hang him? And and um, this is my husband's mother. She said, well, he must have done something wrong. And I think this points to it. I mean, uh, I, I just I just recently finished the series, um, Deadwood 
on, uh, it was an HBO series that ran for a few years, it's now over, about the town of Deadwood. And it, of course, it takes a lot of liberties with history. But it's great. There's a scene where there are two um, African Americans who are now freed from post-Civil War, and they're in Deadwood. And anytime anything goes wrong, even if it has nothing to do with these two men, these two men know they have to get out of town because they are the ones that face the ire of the crowd. And sure enough, if something goes wrong, people go after these two black men. And I think that this is sort of the environment that a lot of, that a lot of, um, freed slaves and African Americans had to deal with. And certainly when we say that they must have done something wrong, I think that that's just wildly inaccurate. Um, I'm just going to tell you a few more stories about lynching because I think that it's important. I think it's something we need to consider, and it needs to not be erased from our history. Of course, the legal system hardly did anything. Um, and of course, you know, lynching claimed thousands of victims across the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. We know a lot of these from the South, but of course they happened in the American West. Violence occurred in the Utah Territory, uh, conflict in the territory was always happening with Mormons and non-Mormons. But um, we do know that even in the early 20th century, lynch, lynching came to be regarded um, sort of like as this peculiar history in Utah's frontier days, but it still happened. In the case of Robert Marshall, he was a black coal miner who was lynched in Price, Utah in 1925 for killing a Mormon police officer. LDS teachings on race and class at the time sort of contributed to this. Scholars Gerlich and Mangum write, quote, Journalists helped readers make sense of the black-on-white violence disruptions to social order in terms that related to Mormon societal apathy. Attitudes regarding such things as power, status, race, class, and religion. These concepts were particularly important when viewed against the backdrop of blackness versus whiteness in Mormon culture in the early 20th century. In 1920, 60% of Utah's population of 449,396 belonged to the Mormon church. Newell K. Bringhurst and Darren T. Smith argue that blackness in the Book of Mormon is presented as a sign of punishment for not obeying God's law. As the religion developed, the LDS Church incorporated many highly negative cultural connotations associated with blackness in its own moral vocabulary. And of course, we see this in the case of Marshall, the black coal miner, um, who was condemned, he's a condemned man, not only because of his crime, but because of his skin. There are many stories of lynchings, and of course, this doctrine sort of fuels it. So, I just, I just bring that up because I feel like that's an important part of the story. These histories are not talked about. I mean, the, the stories I tell are pr primarily white American stories. And, uh, there, of course, are many other histories happening. The most popular and the most prevalent in, on American soil of, in the West, of course, are the indigenous tribes of Utah who are massacred and treated terribly and, uh, sold into slave trades, and we don't talk about those. So please always, when we're considering history, keep those in the back of your mind. Now, back to Anne Gorge. She goes on to tell many, many stories. She talks about escaping. She hangs out with Geronimo. Uh, she saves men trapped in caves. She saves them from the Mormons trying to kill them. Um, 
Billy the Kid becomes her friend. And of course, we do know that Billy the Kid has Mormon ties. And we don't know how verifiable all of this is. But there's 86 pages of this. 86 pages of horrific, graphic violence. And stories of her saving the day. Of John D. Lee being a terrible, cold, and ruthless villain. And Brigham Young. And it's interesting because she, she was his child bride. She was married to him for a long time. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a little bit at the end because we do know she, she does abandon her two children. Of course, like I said, John D. Lee accuses her of falling prey to the lies that all the neighbors are saying and that she steals from him. She would claim in one narrative that she was ready to leave and she was in the basement getting getting something and she slips in the cellar and her dress comes up over her head and she's hurt and she can't get up and she's too embarrassed for anyone to see her that way. So she doesn't call out and they leave the wagon without her. That's one story she tells her children later when she is actually reunited with them as an adult. And on my site, I'm going to post a picture of Anne reunited with her children later on. Her children... um said like they were raised by another sister wife they would they would describe their lives as feeling unwanted and i i'm sure they experienced trauma being uh left and abandoned by their mother she of course takes her youngest and they all reunite later she of course marries again she um judith freeman sort of uh writes with some gender creativity maybe asserting that Anne. Gorge was not necessarily heterosexual, but we do know that Anne remarries. Um, she lives in a few mining towns running hotels and laundries, which we know could also mean prostitution. That's how women like her might have survived in some of these really harsh mining towns. Um, I'm going to read the last little bit. This is the last of her biography. In May of that year, I went into Little Bighorn with three miles of the Custer Massacre. We then went to Gallatin Valley. There we stayed all summer and winter. I did nothing while there. In the spring, we went to Spring Hill on a stage road to keep a stage wagon. Here we stayed from March until January. We quit the station and went to live in a cabin. We had three cows. He killed the cows and sold them to the Indians. In the spring, we went again onto the Yellowstone River about two miles from the National Park. We took up a ranch and getting along fairly well. We had to ranch partly fence when the Indians came and run us out of the place. We then went back to Bozeman and from Bozeman to Sheridan. In Sheridan, I started a laundry and remained until September 1879 when I again burned out, meaning that it burned down. I lost everything. After we were burned out, we hitched up our team and started for Payette Valley, Idaho. We left Sheridan in September 1879 and moved to Payette Valley. We went... We rented a ranch by the name of Stewart. The ranch contained 160 acres of land. We went to work and put it all in grain and potatoes. Everything looked well. The grain was heading up beautifully. The potatoes were in full bloom. In fact, no crop could have been more satisfactory when all at once the river rose to an, an unusual height and overflowed. The whole ranch was washed away. Every particle of the crop left. Nothing but bare ground. Several other ranchers suffered the fate. We went from there to Boise River and stayed there all summer. I worked in this place all summer for a man by the name of Holtz and got beat out of my money. I never got a cent for my summer's work. I moved into Boise City and started a laundry. I stayed here but a short time and then went to a place called Silver City. There I stayed from 1881 to 1883. 
I left and went to Oregon, but did not tarry in Oregon. I came back to Boise. Here I stayed a short time and came back to Utah Territory and have remained ever since. End quote. And that is how she ends this crazy narrative. She sort of, she sort of just leaves it on where she moves to. And according to the Bishop family, Laura Ann Gorge and her daughter eventually escaped their predicament by being trapped in this home and, um, they were aided by friendly Indians and they end up in presumably Oregon. We don't really know what happened to her. It's, it's really hard to tell. We know what we think happened to her. We, we know that, um, later on in life, she, it's very doubtful that she traveled to Australia, Australia, like she says in her narrative or in Europe. When she was 46 years of age, she, we do know she married Frank Kennedy and they had no children. And she dies around 1915 in Tintic, Utah, where her son Albert D. Lee was also living. I, again, it's really hard for me to explain and justify why I find this narrative so compelling. I don't think it's because it's gruesome. I feel like it's because it gives me some insight into the trauma that a, that a frontier woman would have experienced. As a child, as a young child, she is basically sold. In her narrative, she says it's because her mother you know, knows these castrations are happening, goes to complain about it. Her family's in great danger from the Danites, and her mother basically sells her to John D. Lee as a way to protect herself. She never blames her mother. She seems to always have a close fondness and relationship with her mother. But this narrative is so full of trauma, and I can't imagine living in frontier Utah and especially having a life like this. And maybe there is possibly mental illness involved, but the woman leaves and abandons her children, but she was a child herself. So I like stories like this that are complicated, that don't have answers, because I feel like that's what life is. It's complicated and we don't have all the answers. So again, sorry for sharing such a violent narrative. I would recommend the books um, that I'm going to be linking to. But I hope this gives you an insight into the complexity of the pioneer story. Perhaps Anne Gorge Lee rode on horseback with Billy the Kid and Geronimo and saved people from the floods of the Virgin River. That's possible. It's also possible that Anne lived a very abused, very traumatic life with very little care in her life and that she needed to find meaning like we all do. So thank you for listening for another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Please contribute a donation if you are so inclined to help keep this series going. I appreciate every penny that comes in to support us. And we'll see you next week on another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Year of Polygamy.